please stand as you are able for the reading of God's Word. The text for this morning is from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. I will be reading in Polish, and the English text will be on the screen as I read. Potem wszystkim stało się słowo pańskie do Abrama w widzeniu, mówiąc, Nie bój się, Abramie, jam tarczą twoją i nagrodą twoją obfitą wielce. I rzekł Abram, Panie Boże, cóż mi dasz? Gdyż ja schodzę bez dziadek, a sprawcą domu mego jest ten damaszczański Eliezer. I mówił Abram, otoś mi nie dał potomka, ale oto sługa domu mego dziedzicem moim będzie. A oto słowo pańskie stało się do niego mówiąc. Nie będzie ten dziedzicem twoim, lecz który wyjdzie z żywota twego, ten będzie dziedzicem twoim. I wywiódł go na dwór i rzekł, spojrzyj teraz ku niebu, a zlicz gwiazdy, będziesz je mógł zliczyć i rzekł mu, tak będzie nasienie twoje. I uwierzył wtedy Panu i poczytano mu to ku sprawiedliwości. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm the senior pastor here, and the kids right now are being dismissed uh, for Children's Church. A reminder to parents to pick them up right before or right after you take communion. Big day today, not only uh, here at church, but we've got Super Bowl Sunday. Got a couple of teams that I, I really don't care kind of who wins. I don't really care. The only, the only thing I care about uh, for the Super Bowl today is that Taylor Swift has fun. That's, what, that's who I'm cheering for today. I don't really care about the two. Thank you. That's, I don't really care about those teams. But, uh, but Taylor Swift, I just hope she has a good time. Um, Today, uh, we are continuing our sermon series. Wesley, nice suit. Man, that was, that's a well-dressed kid. Um, <laughs> wasn't expecting that. Uh, we're going through the book of Genesis as a church. We're right in the middle of uh, the book of Genesis, and this will take us to uh, Memorial Weekend uh, when we'll finally wrap up the book and then switch to uh, a series that we typically do in the summer, Summer in the Psalms, and we'll go through 10 more psalms uh, this summer. Uh, before we dive into uh, the text today, let me go ahead and pray and prep our hearts for this time. Let's pray. Our great God, we, we're gathered here today because your son is alive. He rose from the dead. He's poured out his spirit on the church, and that means, Lord, you are still at work. You're stirring hearts to believe in you, uh, believe in your promises, uh, you are strengthening in our faith so that we can endure all the uncertainties of our days and our lives and in even the, the brokenness of our own decisions. Lord, we rest in your forgiveness. We rest in your grace today. We rest in this consistency that we have with your word, that what you say is true and that it will be accomplished. Let us see that again today and believe in it. Um, and build our lives around it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week I was reading a book, and I got to a point that the author uh, was making that was really close to home. It was a very personal thing I could relate to. Uh, the book uh, that I'm reading with a group of friends is called 12 Things God Can't Do, and how we can sleep at night uh, when we understand these characteristics of God the author's name is Nick Tucker, and he wants to essentially communicate these classical ways that we have thought throughout the church, uh, church history about God, uh, especially when we consider how different he is than us. 
And the, the title, Things That God Can't Do, is a bit of a, a clickbait title for sure, but he's making the point that just because you have uh, an inability not to do something, that that's necessarily like a good or a bad thing. As he said in his book, quote, to be unable to do wrong is a strength even if it's expressed as an inability. So it's good news that there are some things that God can't do. And one of the chapters is titled, God Cannot Change His Mind. That's a good thing, that God does not change his mind. It means he's consistent, that he's faithful. And this is where he gives a personal illustration that I really related to. It's a story from his personal life, but it's also a habit that I also have. And it's his habit of often committing to things or saying that he's going to do something and not following through. He's like, oh, I'll fix that for my kids, and then I get that at the end of the day. It's not fixed. I'm going to do this house project. This is my goal for the end of the day, and then you get to the end of the day, and you don't accomplish that. This happened to me yesterday when I thought to myself, I'm going to uh, tear off the wallpaper on one of the walls in my room. This is the project that I've been working on all winter, and get that off, and then underneath that, it's like unwrapping what condition is my plaster wall going to be in. It's full of glue and whatever else is there. So the goal was to not get the whole room done, just one wall, just one wall. And by the end of the day, uh, the wallpaper was off, but the glue was still staring at me. It reminded me that I made a commitment that I didn't follow through with. And you know, things come up, right? I, I didn't get to everything that I thought I was going to get to because in the morning I had some other work I had to wrap up first and I was tired from a poor night's sleep the night before, so I wasn't moving at a really ambitious clip. And there's this other situation where we have the one outlet that we can use in our old, like, electric housing thing, right? It's the only outlet that we can use is in the bathroom, and often that uh, is uh, being used, so then you have to close the door, unplug the, the device that we had plugged in so we could steam the glue off, and so that got in the way and beat back the project, and I just decided to end the night watching a good movie. So that all to say, uh, I made a commitment to get a lot done. Very ambitious day. I did not follow through, and which is often the case not only probably in your life that you have uh, big lofty goals and commitments to yourself or others, but then it doesn't happen. People make commitments to you and things don't happen. So stuff happens at work in your career that you thought was a guarantee and then it doesn't happen and it falls apart. This is an illustration that I'm sure we can all relate to both in our own decision making and also the world that we live in. And in the book of Genesis, we are also seeing this reality of human beings on display as well, that we are constantly uh, messing things up. We're going sideways. We're not following through on our end of the commitment. And God is intervening time and time again to make a commitment to restore and bless the world through his people. But time and time again, the people and God's people are not doing uh, their part, essentially, to keep up that commitment. And so today we are encountering that theme again, where we see two more stories that continue to show God's commitment uh, to us and his promises, oftentimes despite our own actions. So let's get into the text today. Before we get into Genesis 15, the background from last week is that Abram, uh, the, the, the central figure here, uh, just finished uh, in this battle where he rescued a family member, and it's starting to show how he's transitioning from this a vulnerable migrant household to being a very uh, powerful household, one that's growing economically and militarily. And he has 
been growing in that sense, but in the other sense, uh, he has not been growing. His family is not growing, even though God had promised him and his wife Sarai that they would have children and acquire land, and neither of those things have happened yet. In chapter 13, God promised that all the land that Abram was seeing around him would be his, that he would have possession of it, and that he would also have his own biological offspring, which God said, I'm going to make them innumerable. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And so we get to chapter 15 with all this in mind, and the Lord is coming to Abram in a vision, and Abram, because of this situation, is having some questions for the Lord. Let's look at those, verses 1 through 3. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can you give, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate, Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. The Lord speaks to Abram in this vision gives him words of assurance that he will give him promises, he'll give Abram protection. And the Lord reminds Abram that all all the things that he is being blessed with, that God himself is the greatest reward. That's what he says. Yet Abram has this question, Lord, what can you give me? How can you follow through with this promise of blessing? Because I have no children who are going to inherit my estate. As it stands right now, the heir of these things is an unrelated family, an unrelated member of his household. And this is how God responds in verses 4 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Skipping down to verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So God continues to affirm his promises to Abram. He says, you will get both a land and a son, and the son is going to be your own flesh and blood. In fact, you will not only have a son, but there will be numerous offspring that will come from your son that will number, outnumber the stars in the sky. And at that point, he says, go out into that sky, look up. And he's not in an urban center. This is like, think about the sky at the, like, the church retreat. Think about like going outside of the city where you don't have that urban glow of light and looking up into that sharp night sky at all those stars. And that's what Abram saw. And that was the illustration to him from God that that will be the number of your descendants. Try to count those stars. You're not going to be able to do it because there are so many. You will lose count of all those stars. And that is my promise to you. And as Abram was considering these words and promises, looking at the sky, looking at the stars, the vast array of all these stars and galaxies, he believed in the Lord. Verse 6 says this, And Abram believed the Lord, And God credited it to him as righteousness. This is another one of those verses in Genesis that gets a lot of play in the New Testament Testament and elsewhere in the Old Testament too. This is a big deal, this verse, and what it's communicating. As Abram is listening to God's word and his promises, he's not saying anything, but his faith and his heart is active and responding to God's word. Abram is believing God in this moment, believing his promises, And when God sees this faith in Abram, the Lord, it says, credits that faith to Abram as righteousness. 
That's a striking statement. Righteousness is used throughout the Scripture to refer to, as we're familiar with it, actions. Maybe the character of God or the character of a human being. One's, life's, one's life or one's actions can be righteous or just. But here God is acquitting somebody and considering that person as righteous by faith. To be righteous means to be right before God, that he is showing favor to you, that he accepts you as you are. But Abram here isn't doing anything righteously. He is rather responding to God's promises with faith. And so the text says that God credits that faith or counts it as righteous. It's not just, that, it's not just faith in anything that he's crediting as righteous. It's faith in God's promises. The object matters. It's not faith in Abram or his own abilities or himself or his situation, but it's faith in God that is being credited as righteous. Thus, rather than any action being the basis for God's view of his people, it is faith that he counts as righteous. So, too, God regards anyone as right in his eyes if we believe in his promises and his actions with faith. It also means that these questions that Abram is asking God in this moment is coming from a place of faith. Let's look at the second question he asks in verses 8 through 11. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? He's talking about the land and the promises. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. What is going on here, right? This is a, a very odd situation. So Abram's faith is longing to go deeper into the knowledge of God's promises and so God instructs him to do a sacrifice and he does so by taking three animals and cutting them in half and then this other thing happens where all these like scavenger birds come tries to prey on these sacrificed animals and then Abram chases them away it is a odd scene isn't it well the verses start to go on to make it even clearer a little bit what might be going on here the details of these following verses matter to help us understand what the sacrifice is all about. What happens next is Abram falls into a deep sleep and the Lord continues to communicate to him the meaning of what just happened, what he, just, what he has seen. And he tells Abram about what's going to happen to his future uh, descendants. That, and all this is uh, recorded in the book of Exodus. His descendants will be enslaved in a different country for 400 years, God tells Abram. But God will still redeem his people from that bondage, and they will return to this promised land as a mighty people, despite being enslaved. And he, God says at that point, he's going to remove this nation that's occupying the promised land and give it to this redeemed people that he just rescued out of slavery. And you might be wondering, well, why is God waiting 400 years to do this? Uh, chapter 15, verse 16 tells us, In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites, that's the people that occupy this land, has not reached its full measure. It's a reminder that God is just. He will not unjustly remove a people from the land, but at some point their wickedness, their sin will be so, so terrible that God will remove them and then give the land to his people. 
And then we have this detail. So you have, again, this is the setting. You have the sacrifice. You have halves of bodies from animals here and there. And he's having this vision, this communication about what's happening. And then he sees in verse 17 this in the vision. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. That's the pieces of these animal sacrifices. And again, it's just like, all right, what is happening here? Well, the fire, we know from elsewhere in the Old Testament, represents God's presence. God is passing through these sacrifice animals. And remember the question that Abram asked. He wants to see something that shows him and gives him more of an assurance that God's promises will come to pass. And this is what God has given him, the sacrifice scene with God's fire passing through the, the sections of these animals. So here's the couple understandings of what's happening here. One understanding from commentators is that this is an ancient way that people affirm a covenant or an agreement with one another. A person would walk through the bodies, literally walk through the bodies of sacrificed animals, and this is essentially an ancient contract that says, may this happen to me if I don't follow through on my commitment. In other words, it's a really ancient way of saying, over my dead body will I break my promises to you. So that could be one thing that's happening with the sacrifices. Other commentators will say that there's more symbolism going on with the, why it's three animals and why is God passing through them in that way. And this understanding sees that the three sacrificed animals represent three generations of Abraham's descendants that will be oppressed in Egypt. The birds of the prey represent unclean nations, sinful nations that need to be chased away. And the vision of the fire passing through the sacrifice is symbolizing God's presence that is always with his people. So either of them preach in my mind, in both ways of understanding this imagery, is communicating essentially the same powerful thing. God is making clear that he is not going to bail out on his promises. He's going to be among his people for generations. He's going to stick with them. And he is going to follow through with what he says. And as the next chapter will show, God is committed uh, this promise not only to Abram, but anybody in Abram's household as well. Now, before we go to chapter 16, let me uh, give another background for the second story. Back in chapter 12, Abram hears these promises of God for the first time. You're going to have a son, and you're going to acquire this land. And then right after that story, Abram comes up with this terrible idea to say that Sarai, his wife, is actually his sister to save his own butt from being persecuted or ridiculed from the Egyptians because they were living in Egypt at this time. And he does not look out for himself, uh, or he looks out for himself, rather, and not his wife. And so Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, takes Sarai to be his, and God has to intervene to save Sarai. Remember that messed up story? Well... That happened right after God promised something, and now another messed up story is going to happen right after God makes a covenant and, 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 and reassures God's people of this covenant again. Now it's not Abram's uh, idea that's the bad idea. Sarai comes up with a bad idea. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but, sin, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar, so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed 
to what Sarai said. Another terrible idea in response to God's promises. We're introduced to this other character. Hagar, we're told, is a slave from Egypt who is likely working as a maid to Sarai. Sarai is not pregnant. She's still not pregnant, so she takes matters into her own hands rather than trusting God's promises. She blames God for not having children and tells Abram to have a child with Hagar. So Abram agrees with it, and they plan to get married, and he will sleep with her, and she will become pregnant. Now, one side note at this point in the book of Genesis to help you to keep reading this as the story that it is. Because you might be thinking at this time, well, how does this get on the scene? And I've always struggled, maybe, maybe this is you, you've always struggled in the Old Testament with uh, their slavery and polygamy. Like, is that, is that cool in the Old Testament? Are we okay with this? But remember how you read Scripture matters and how you read the story. We have to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 to think about what's happening here appropriately. Because, again, we've come a long way since Eden, this garden paradise. And, and now we are at a point in Genesis, because sin has entered the world and it's been growing, that both slavery and polygamy enter into this story. And although these things are being described here, it doesn't mean they're being endorsed by the Scriptures. In Eden, you have to remember, there is no slavery in Eden. Because human beings are made to experience the freedom of belonging to God, then it's always against God's will and way for human beings to be enslaved to one another. What it's describing here is not being endorsed by the Scriptures. The same with the second marriage. In the beginning, God created Eve from Adam, and it's important that he only created one female in this account. Because marriage in Scripture, as it's created to be, is a union between male and female who become husband and wife, and then mother and father to anyone their union of love creates. So Sarai, encouraging Abram to marry and conceive with Hagar, is also crossing God's good boundaries that he has set in creation. This is not a positive tale about what's going on here. We have come a long way since Eden. That's the point. There's echoes of the fall that happened in Genesis 3. But instead of Adam and Eve, we have Abram and Sarai mistrusting God's provision and promises by taking for themselves something that's outside of God's boundaries and ways and taking matters into their own hands. But Sarah's plan to conceive through Hagar is successful, but it does not make things better. Things get much worse. Verses 4 through 6 of this chapter go on to say that Hagar despised Sarai, which is a, in the word, it's an interesting word because in the context, it means that she started to look down on her. And Sarai gets mad at Abram for this situation. And then Abram hands Hagar over to Sarai, who then begins, the text says, to mistreat her, which actually is kind of a weak way to translate that word. The original word in that context likely means that Sarai is abusing or causing great harm or suffering in Hagar's life. The situation is awful enough that Hagar runs away. This is a terrible situation, and she just wants out of it. Sin and mistrust of God's promises are tearing this household apart. You might be thinking at this point, man, does anybody look out for Hagar? Like this injustice, this terrible stuff that's happening to her? Does anybody care? And we see that somebody does care in verses 7 to 8. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is uh, beside the road in Shur. 
And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. So God is pursuing Hagar through an angel, a messenger, and finds her going back to Egypt, going back to her homeland to to flee this mistreatment, this suffering, this injustice that she is facing. And at this point, it's probably likely that Hagar does not recognize who this being is, likely thinks that this is a person, not an angel that she is talking to. Yet this person, this being, knows her name and knows her background and her household. The angel asked her, where have you come from and where are you going? And she responds, I am running away. I just want to get away. The angel goes on to command Sarai, or command Hagar, rather, to go back to Sarai, which is a harsh thing for the angel to ask, wouldn't it be, to go back to this situation? But then he follows it up with these promises from God in verses 10 through 12. Then the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers." So verse 10 and following includes these promises, and especially verse 10, did you notice that language? This is the same language that, that God gave to, gave to Abram. It's the same promise, and this is the way the scriptures are saying that this promise applies to her too, that God wants to give these, these commitments and this covenant to Hagar, and so that her also, her descendants are going to be too numerous to count as well. God is making it clear that his covenant promises include her and her children too. The angel goes on to give details about the child, the son. His name is Ishmael, which is a name that means that God hears. That's what his name means, God hears, because God hears what is happening to Hagar, and he has likely heard her pleas for help and her prayers. Ishmael's life is then described with this ancient equivalent of a no-collar lifestyle. That's basically what's being described there. Do you know what no-collar means? You have like, you know, white-collar workers and blue-collar workers. Then you have no-collar workers. They're these free-spirited individuals that don't want to commit to too much and want to make sure that their life remains uh, free because they have a big case of FOMO. They don't want to, you know, fear of missing out, that type of thing. That's a no-collar lifestyle. And if you read those verses, it's essentially the ancient way of describing this no-collar white lifestyle. It's, this is a free-spirited individual named Ishmael that is going to live differently than the rest of the world. He's not going to have a conventional life. And what's so striking about the description, actually, is that, remember, Hagar is a slave. But what's being described about her son is this life of freedom that he will have. It's a life of freedom that will create friction with those around him, but he will be able to be free in a way that she does not get to experience. Now, it's at this point that Hagar likely realizes that she's not talking to just anyone, but rather she's encountering God through this angelic messenger. And she says in verse 13, I think this is just such a powerful verse, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. Isn't that awesome? You are the God who sees me. 
For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I just think that's such a wonderful response, considering what she's gone through, considering what she experienced. She likely feels like nobody sees her, but then she encounters God who sees her, the one that truly sees her. And to be seen by God in this way is another way that the scriptures are saying that God cares about somebody. If God sees you, that means he cares. God saw the injustice taking place against her. He cared, and he did something about it. He showed up with his presence and his promises. Hagar may have been running away from her suffering, but she did not leave God's tender gaze in this story. Hagar could maybe quote Psalm 139 at this point and declare that God knows her and cares about her no matter where she is, no matter where she goes, no matter what she experiences, God cares. And she is embracing God's promises to her and her son. And it's about Hagar we could also say as well that she believed in the Lord and God credited it to her as righteous because she is believing in the promises of God to her. Chapter 16 closes with Hagar going back to Abram and Sarai and bearing this son. And the last verse makes it clear that she did not give birth to Sarai's son. That's how the language is is being very careful. But this is her own son, the one that belongs to her that she is giving birth to. Now, God sees us. That is a wonderful thing to to, to think about, to ponder. God sees our suffering. And that, that, that is such a great source of encouragement if you are experiencing things right now that are outside of your control. But also, God seeing us so deeply also has a little bit of a scary side to it as well. He sees everything, including the things that we hide from others and even try to hide from ourselves. God saw, for example, Abram and Sarai putting Hagar in this terrible situation. God saw not only Sarai's mistreatment of Hagar, but also how Hagar despised Sarai. He saw that in her heart too. God saw Abram lie about being married uh, to Sarai in Egypt, and also Abram going along with this plan that, that, that his wife came up to marry this woman and have a child with her. God sees all of that as well, and he sees all of that in our life as well. It reminds me of this quote from author Rebecca McLaughlin, who writes that, quote, all relationships hinge to some extent on hiding. Every relationship you have, there's elements that that person's hiding things from you and you're hiding things from that person. But one of the things we see in Scripture is you cannot hide anything from God. He not only sees us in the sense that he cares, but he sees and knows everything about us, even the things that we are, we are hiding from others and ourselves. He sees everything that other people don't, don't even notice or are blind to notice. And for any other relationship, it would be a terrifying thought for somebody to know you that deeply. We would likely lose relationships if somebody knew us that well. We might get fired from work if people knew all our thoughts and all our actions. And God sees us more than any other relationship can see us. But here's the good news. He doesn't give up. He doesn't abandon you. He does not bail out, even though he sees you more than anybody else can ever see you. He still cares. He's still committed to his promises. And when there is faith, he counts that faith as righteousness. And these are the things that Paul is likely reflecting on uh, when he's reading Genesis 15 and 16 and, and thinking about these stories at the end of Romans 4. 
And he's making a similar application uh, that I did when I applied these verses to Hagar, that he's applying it to all of God's people. So again, he's remembering the story. Remember chapter 15, that against all odds, Abraham, or Abram, is, is, is having hope, and he's believing in God's promises. And these are promises that, that, that are strengthening him as he's looking at his life because his situation looks kind of hopeless. Abraham and Sarah, uh, Sarah couldn't conceive during their youngest years, and at the time of these promises, they were far too old to even have children. And Paul is recounting this story, and then he writes in Romans 4.20, Yet he, Abraham, or Abram, did not waver through unbelief, through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave, God, gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Paul says the point of God crediting faith as righteousness is a truth that not only applies to Abram and applies to Hagar, but applies to all of God's people, including the church. Again, when the scriptures say faith, it's shorthand for faith in God. It's not faith just in anything. The object matters. And note how these promises take on a gospel shape in the New Testament. Those who believe that Jesus died for our sins and God raised him from the dead are righteous in God's sight. That's what Paul writes. And again, the object matters. I've heard different church leaders make a similar point and similar illustrations on this, that it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength of the object you place your faith in. For example, like having strong faith in an unreliable car is not going to get you into the destination you want to go to. It doesn't matter how much confidence you have in that object if the object is unreliable. But a weak faith in a reliable vehicle will get you to your destination even if you have questions, even if you have doubts, even if you regress for moments of your life and come back to your, that faith. If it's in the appropriate object, it will take you to where you need to go. And all earthly relationships that you will experience will be more like an unreliable car, which is why we can't put our faith in those things. We don't experience much in our world with absolute reliability, including our relationships. Man, we have experiences all the time where people are changing their minds. They forget and they get distracted. We have, as human beings, convictions one day and then we read an article and like, oh, now I've changed my mind. This seems to be the popular opinion. Our reliability is often dependent on the amount of sleep we get or the mood that we're in. That causes us to change our mind and our trajectories in life. We make our plans and then we're, on, we're hit by unforeseen circumstances and then we decide we need to change our approach. We often overcommit and we get overwhelmed and then we look back on those commitments we made with regret, saying, why didn't I acknowledge my own limitations? That's what it's like to be human and to have human relationships and how frustrating it is to put your hope in things like that. But here we get back to that good news. God is not like us at all in that way. There is nothing in this world more reliable than the promises of God 
who raised Jesus from the dead. So going back to that book by Nick Tucker, who after making the point that I opened the sermon with, continues to reflect on God's inability to change his mind, which is a good thing. To say it positively, God will always follow through on his promises, all the time. He writes uh, this as he was reflecting on this reality, quote, Our God does not and will not and cannot change his mind. He never wakes up in a bad mood. He never forgets an agreement he's made or a conversation he's had. He will never find something better or more convenient to do than keep his promises to you. He will never find someone more interesting or more strategic to invest his efforts in. He is never blindsided by new information or swayed by popular opinion. He's not looking to back out on what he just started. He's committed in his affection, resolute in his justice, determined in his plans. Nothing and no one can throw him off course. And so that's why we as Christian people build our life on the promises of God in Christ. Faith in Christ is our assurance that God will count us as righteous. It's a guarantee in your life that he is not going to back out of. It is, is, it is something that we can fall asleep at night reminding ourselves that God likes us. He cares about us. He considers us his. And the only way that God's promises of, uh, to us in Christ would ever fail is if God fails. And we know it is impossible for him to ever fail. And so build your life on this good news, brothers and sisters, that Christ died for your sins, that he raised from the dead. And when you believe in that promise, you believe in that reality, God counts you as righteous forever. Amen, church? Amen.